Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello. And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he's in town with a few days to kill. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. I'm going to take a stab and say that that is the tagline for Gross Point Blank. No, although that would be an excellent kind of tagline for that movie. It's actually Predator 2. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, it's literally that is what he does. He, you know, does go into the city for a bit and kill a lot of people over the course of a few days so Mm. you know that's fair well done marketing team it's labor day as we record this so happy labor day to all american listeners and to ed what is labor day ed i've got no fucking idea i believe it celebrates the great work that unions have made uh and how what they have contributed to american life uh which always seems bitterly ironic considering that over the last 20 or 30 years or so there have been very uh, rigorous efforts to curb the power of unions but mm. everyone still gets to have a day off so i guess that's all that really matters yeah yeah i've always kind of i've no idea what any of these um kind of american holidays are because you guys get so few of them mm. like you know they always kind of i just i just thought it was a terrible jason reitman movie um <laughs> which i guess it is been a busy week this week i suppose the biggest story of the week is a sad one uh with uh, gene wilder passing away kind of a fixture of everyone's childhood i guess ed uh and you know you know really kind of sad sad kind of news but given that like he hasn't done a lot uh he kind of definitely stepped away from professional work didn't really do much kind of retired kind of some point in the mid 90s would occasionally turn up on things like will and grace and a few tv movies but um yeah a really kind of like sad thing to happen it was and it was also interesting because obviously this year we've had a lot of iconic uh people dying uh which has happened well it happens every year but this year for some reason it feels as if it's happening more often with like bowie and prince and all these other people but uh, i always find it interesting thinking which which kind of prominent people are the, the deaths that really stick and really strike a chord uh and if you'd said to me last week that like everyone would have been really upset by the death of gene wilder i wouldn't have picked him as being that one because you say he hadn't been around for a while and to me like Gene Wilder is like the star of all of these great comedies from the seventies that he that he wouldn't seem to be someone would be necessarily that relevant to people of all ages. But then obviously you think, oh well, I guess Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was a much bigger part of everyone's childhood. And it was definitely a big part of my childhood because I was like a Roald Dahl obsessive, and I was always really annoyed that they changed the ending of the book. But like, uh, it was really striking to me to see just how much his death impacted everyone from all of these different age ranges and all these people with like people who happen maybe weren't familiar with his work with mel brooks would have been familiar with him as willy wonka because it was a, a very defining role for him mm. i've I kind of think is weird that uh gene wilder was a definitely a figure in my childhood because in my childhood i didn't watch willy wonka i didn't i only saw willy wonka for the first time last year which is kind of very uh, unusual i guess um but i did watch as a youth and as a child um things like you know see no evil hear no evil and uh, haunted honeymoon and silver streak and young <laughs> young frankenstein films which you know perhaps i was very, way too young to understand um but he was always there um and i noted this on twitter like that you know the my kind of 
um, there's a good story that like I remember being at uni and people were talking about kind of their sexual awakenings in film. And so many people who were older than me were saying, well, you know, it was uh, Barbara Windsor's like bra coming off in like uh, kind of the, the carry on film because, you know, that would have been maybe on TV, like the first pair of tits they saw. So they mm-hmm. were like, you know, and but weirdly for me, it was the film Woman in Red, which like, you know, Kelly LeBrock was in that. And so was Gene Wilder, which is just weird that like in these points in my life, he's been there. And I find it odd to think that maybe I was sexually awakened on film. With Gene Wilder, <laughs> which is, you know, that's what it is, what it is, I guess. But, like, he has made some kind of absolute stone-cold classics. Young Frankenstein, I mentioned there, The Producers, Blazing Saddles, which uh, I kind of spoke to you about. I hadn't actually seen until this week. It's a bloody great film. But, yeah, his work with Mel Brooks was just was kind of right up there, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, what's even more amazing is that he put out Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles within six months of each other in the same year. Well, so. And two of the best comedy American comedies ever made. Also, two of the I think probably two of the most successful comedies ever made. If you were just for inflation, because they were both massive hits the year that came out. I think they may even both have been in the top ten. Blazing Saddles certainly was, mm. uh, and that's kind of fantastic. And also um, a film that I was shown in history class in GCSE when we studied the American West for reasons that baffle me to this day. Yeah. It wasn't like it was an edited for TV version. It was there with all of the swearing and all of the racial epithets you could want. And they showed it to a bunch of 15 year olds to give us a sense of what it was like to, in America in the uh, the days of, uh, of you know, Manifest Destiny. Mm. And that's a very unusual film to show someone in a history lesson, given that uh, the film features kind of references to 20, 20th century culture, features Nazis in uniform, and ends with a fight that happens on the Warner Brothers studio lot. Um, it seems like a very unusual film. I mean, what I'm trying to say, Ed, is as funny as it is, it's very unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, it does lack the the air of authenticity to it. Uh, mm. It has to be said. Although they did eat a lot of beans in those days. So that scene, entirely correct. Yeah, absolutely. We also uh, saw the passing this week of John Polito, who is probably, and it's sometimes a name that a lot of people probably won't know, but a face you definitely will, kind of a character actor, um, most notable for turning up in pretty much all the good Coen Brothers films. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of his biggest parts, I guess, were probably in Barton Fink and uh, Miller's Crossing, definitely. He's also in The Big Lebowski and The Man Who Wasn't There. And yeah, he's kind of just like, he's just an amazing character. Actually, he always brought something beyond perhaps what you'd expect as stock roles, uh, the kind of the stock private eye or the stock gangster. Um, he was kind of like a very strange kind of like weaselly energy to him. Yeah, I mean, the thing you say, the Big Lebowski there, he's also responsible or, or partly responsible for one of my favourite ever jokes, which is the scene where he and... Uh, and uh, Jeff Bridges meet for the first time, and maybe even the only time. I'm not sure if he shows up in any scene other than that one in the movie. And he says, "You know, I'm a fe- fellow brother, Seamus," and the, and the dude says, "An Irish monk," <laughs> which is a, a joke that I I love dearly. And and his uh, interaction with Jeff Bridges in that scene is, is wonderful. Uh, and he's also great in the series Homicide: Life on the Street, which he was in for the first two seasons. Uh, which I always find surprising because he was such a big presence during those first two seasons that I keep thinking that he was in the show for much longer because he cast something of a, a long shadow over it, uh, you know, just playing this great dedicated detective who also had that kind of, like you say, Weasley air to him. 
and I actually think of the of him and Gene Wilder. I think John Polito's death may have hit me harder than Gene Wilder's, purely because obviously like Gene Wilder had been out of the public eye for a long period of time, and he was the sort of person where a lot of people said, you know, after he died, I thought that he already had died mm-hmm. because he's the sort of person that you know kind of receded from public life. Uh, whereas John Polito was in like five films and TV shows last year. And so, like, when someone's, like, constantly there and then suddenly they pass, that's the sort of thing that I find uh, that that tends to hit harder than uh, someone who, you know, disappears and then kind of passes away kind of quietly and privately. Mm. And I think John Polito is someone that I'd always regarded as being fairly ageless because he looked the same 25 (laughs) years ago that he did, like, this year. So I just kind of assumed he was kind of some immortal character actor. Um, that would kind of never be out of uh, out of our consciousness. But sad news this week, a double loss. Also this week, the Oscars are uh, kind of uh, not really gearing up, but we're about to kind of get into that season, aren't we? But they've announced, the Academy have announced um, who's going to receive the honorary Oscars next year. Um, and there is definitely one uh, very welcome, but also surprising addition, isn't there, Ed? Uh, yeah, the nominees for the honorary Oscar. Oh, I say nominees, they are getting them. They don't mm-hmm. have to compete. Uh, the, you know, if it's an honorary Oscar, you get them. Are Frederick Wiseman, who is a kind of legendary documentarian responsible for things like uh, most recently in uh, at Berkeley, which is a very long documentary about Berkeley University in America. He's kind of a pioneer of the um, pioneer of the the verite format. Although I think he has some problems with that term. But anyway, uh, Anne V. Coates, who is an editor whose work includes everything from Lawrence of Arabia and Out of Sight to Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is quite a career. Lynn Stolmaster, who is a kind of a legendary casting director who's done lots of things. And uh, you alluded to him, Jackie Chan is going mm. to win, be Oscar winner Jackie Chan. I mean, that's kind of nuts given that, like, I mean, I've seen the tuxedo, right? I mean, I didn't think <laughs> that that guy is, you know, he's Oscar worthy. But if you think about it, like, no one has done more um for things like kind of stunt work i guess and the the idea that i mean tom cruise wouldn't be doing his own stunts if it weren't for jackie chan the idea that a uh performer someone who is incredibly hard to ensure um should be doing anything dangerous is absurd but if you look at jackie chan's resume he's fucking done it all and he's broken literally every bone and nearly died and if you think about his kind of uh, his career in terms of appeal uh, across two markets, two of the biggest markets in the world, uh, two, the two biggest markets in the world, uh, he's unmatched, isn't he? Yeah, and also in terms of he's not just a great performer in that he's, he's a hugely entertaining presence on screen and obviously there's all of the stunt work. He's also a really great director and choreographer as well. You know, the, the various films that he's made, like Police Story and all of those films that he made in Hong Kong. They're just great works of action comedy. He's someone who knows how to use a camera to sell a gag, and I think he's hugely underrated as a as a as a director. In addition to being just like a great, wonderful on screen presence, and even though due to how prolific he is, there's a lot of kind of uh, chaff in the kind of wheat chaff ratio of his career. Mm-hmm. The uh, elan he brings to absolutely everything he's doing, and the fact that he clearly loves making movies. Uh, is is one of the many reasons why he's such an endearing presence, other than the fact that he just seems to be just like a really lovely guy who uh, has made some of the most entertaining movies uh, of my lifetime. Mm, yeah, yeah. So well done, Mr. Chan. I really do 
Um, I can't wait to see that kind of... I mean, I really hope he falls through the ceiling or something and kind of like lands on the podium and then just dusts himself off and picks the Oscar up. That'd be pretty awesome. Or they um, like throw him the Oscar and he can't quite catch it and then he runs through the Kodak Theatre, kind of bouncing it from hand to hand, up ladders, knocking over bookcases and having to run across the top. You know, mm. if, if there's ever a year where they need to introduce an Oscar for best stunt work, I feel like uh, <laughs> this is the year and uh, they can incorporate that into the ceremony mm, yeah yeah it'll probably brighten up what is largely a kind of long drawn out affair and you know i welcome that okay god ed we've got to talk about suicide squad again last week <laughs> uh, dear listeners we um tried to talk about suicide squad in brief and then talk about some of the issues that come out of that film uh, instead we talked about suicide squad a lot and uh, it was a kind of a cathartic experience for the pair of us because, I mean, Ed clearly hated the film. Uh, I didn't like it, but then I didn't realise until we started talking about it just how much I did. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't heard that bit, go back if you want to hear us kind of laying into Suicide Squad for an hour because we didn't really have enough time to talk about the issues arising from Suicide Squad and what Suicide Squad means for the year and for the summer and for blockbusters in general um, because there's a lot to talk about there. So this episode is about us talking about issues related to Suicide Squad and we can't therefore talk about how bad Suicide Squad is. But if anyone's interested, it's still terrible. So what are the big issues arising from um, the, the failure, I guess, of Suicide Squad? And the first one I want to talk about, which is the kind of it looms large over the summer, is how bad this summer has been for Hollywood blockbusters um, in general. We've talked about it briefly in the, the, the kind of the state of the blockbuster episode we did a few weeks ago. But Suicide Squad is kind of like the cap on the summer, isn't it? It's the end of the last film, the last big film of what has turned out to be a pretty rotten few months. Yeah, I mean, there were some highlights, like Finding Dory was a good film that did really well. Civil War is popular, if not for me, great. It's like fine, um, but not as good as previous Marvel movies. Uh, and when you look at like the top 10 movies, that uh, the, the, the 10 biggest movies of the summer it's there's very few of them that you could look at and say okay not only did that movie did really well but it was also really good um mm. there's lots of them that were kind of fell in the middle something like star trek beyond which you know people liked but didn't do very well legend of tarzan which was better than people expected but also did terribly x-men apocalypse which some people really liked most people were indifferent to didn't do very well uh jason Bourne again falls very much in the middle it's it's basically been a a year with very few critical standouts when you look at the movies that cost more than a hundred million dollars to make and even fewer ones where you can imagine like the uh the accountants being particularly happy with the returns yeah and it's it's been bad in the sense that like some of the surefire hits have really fallen kind of on their face uh, you would expect something like independence day resurgence for example um, given how last year we talked about this a lot, you know, with, with Jurassic World and, and Star Wars, just how nostalgia played such a big part in, in getting people into the cinemas last year. And you'd think that um, with that, everyone would have been, you know, falling over themselves to to kind of like reboot properties. Uh, and we got Independence Day this year. We got Ghostbusters. And I mean, Independence Day Resurgent really, really, really did badly, didn't it? I mean, it, it kind of just crawled over 100 million domestically, which is really bad given it had a 165 million budget. Yeah, and considering that it was very, very 
hyped. There were lots of commercials for it. There was the marketing was everywhere. There was um, it's about twenty years since the first one came out. It had all of these things which theoretically should have benefited it and made people really interested in seeing it. But apparently, uh, they over they underestimated the appeal of Will Smith in the original <laughs> and the fact that the film did really well because at that time Will Smith had just done like bad boys and he was on the cusp of becoming the biggest movie star in the world for the better part of a decade mm-hmm. and and so the idea of like hey we're going to bring back all of the stuff of this movie that is was really kind of generic and we're going to get rid of the person who made it all work uh turned out not to be the safest bet um, yeah, and apparently Judd Hirsch isn't quite uh, the draw he was uh, in his ordinary people days. Yeah, well, yeah, which is a shame. I mean, he's a wonderful actor, but you know, he's not really going to get the uh, the summer crowd into the cinema. Ghostbusters is an interesting case because uh, I mean that did kind of relatively well with critics, but the nostalgia effect didn't really kick in for that at all. I mean, it did okay, but didn't do amazing. And I think that's that's a theme, isn't it? With a lot of the films, they kind of did okay, but. Only a few, only a handful, two or three films had uh, have really kind of gone through the roof. Yeah, and also I think, in contrast to the last couple of years, is there's no movie you can point to as a big budget blockbuster that critics like fell over themselves for. Mm. Like if you look at the last last year, you had Mad Max Fury Road, which didn't do brilliantly commercially, did well, did okay, but was one of the best films of the year based on you know, critics' opinions and most, you know, most people who saw it thought it was an amazing work of cinema, uh, ended up winning six Oscars and being nominated for Best Picture. It was like a crazy success that I don't think anyone foresaw at the start of the year. The year before you had Edge of Tomorrow, which again, filmed that didn't do hugely well, but got a lot of goodwill and people kind of really fell in love with. Whereas this year, it's like there's a lot of films that, uh, that, Critics kind of say, yeah, that was fine, and that did well. Or there are films that, uh, or you know, the the films that people really liked were like low budget stuff, which ended up doing, you know, relatively well. There was no film that you could point to as a justification for the blockbuster model. Mm. It's interesting as well. Um, uh, we'll kind of put a link to this in the in the kind of show notes, but there's a great Tom, Todd Van der Werf uh, article on Vox.com, which kind of talks about this summer. Um, and it's interesting to note that if you look at the 10 most successful films worldwide at the box office, um, there's only one film, which is a Chinese comedy called The Mermaid, which, no, me neither. That's the only film out of the top 10 that doesn't involve superheroes or talking animals. Yeah, uh, that's a Stephen Chow movie, which is the only reason I know it. Apparently, it's really good. But uh, the uh, I remember when it came out, there was a big fuss, or minor fuss, I guess, within the kind of the film critic community that a movie that was one of the most successful films of the year, really, mm-hmm. uh, because it did so well in China and worldwide, was being shown on like four screens in the US or something. Like Sony barely gave it any sort of a release at all, and wow. no one no one had a chance to watch it, even though Stephen Chow is like genuinely a major global talent mm-hmm. Would, in a kind of you were saying about how there's no film that critics have fawned over what about something i mean looking at the list of that that top 10 films that i just noticed zootopia probably is the best or nearest or the jungle book uh i mean they were both kind of really well liked and did really well but didn't come out they came out in like january or february yeah like if we're yeah. just talking about the summer yeah, there's there's very little to kind of get very excited about those films. 
because the idea now has become that uh, you don't have to release a blockbuster or a potential blockbuster in uh, in the summer months anymore. It can basically come out more or less any time of the year. Now, I think um, Disney and other companies seem to be taking a punt on the idea that maybe it's best to release a movie that you are really excited about in a period when you aren't going to be competing with about 20 other big budget movies all coming out at the same time. Mm. And that that's probably one of the big reasons that there's been no film that's kind of run away with it this year is it feels like saturation point with blockbusters. It's not like, you know, 10 years ago where, you know, you'd have maybe four or five big films per summer. We kind of had a big film every week. Yeah, and eventually people just get worn out on that or they become a little more circumspect about how they're going to spend their money. That's when things like the uh, tomato meter and uh, Metacritic become more important because people are thinking, you know, I don't I don't have the time or the money to go and watch a big blockbuster every week, so I'm going to look at what critics are saying and then, you know, kind of uh, spend my time accordingly. And mm. I think you can really see that phenomenon occurring this summer in something that I, th- I think has been happening in, in more and more in recent years, which is that film critics as individuals, I think matter less and less now than they ever have before. Like there's mm-hmm. very few film critics that you could point to like in the past, a Pauline Kale or a Roger Ebert or someone like that, uh, or Leonard Moulton as someone that is kind of a household name that everyone reads or that most people read. But thanks to Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, the aggregates of critics seem to matter a lot more. So a bad movie or a movie that is perceived to be bad by critics, which is usually the same thing, um, is more likely to fail now than like 10 years ago when there was the the idea of a critic-proof movie seemed to be kind of uh, infallible logic. Mm, yeah. Surprising that... Um, in working the opposite, a film that got you know pretty decent reviews, the BFG, a uh, big kind of uh, uh, family-friendly film, Steven Spielberg behind the helm, um, looked pretty kind of dazzling. No one went to see it. Yeah, at least not in America. And worldwide, it did slightly better, but it was it was basically the same situation with Tintin a few years ago, mm-hmm. where that was a film that did very mediocre business in the US, and then because the character of Tintin is a globally recognised icon. It did like fairly well elsewhere. Uh, and because the BFG is kind of a beloved childhood classic in, in Europe and other places, more so than in the US, it did uh, pretty much as bad as any Spielberg film has ever done <laughs> uh, over here. Like, if you're in Just for Inflation, it's down there with things like, you know, the Sugarland Express, you know, stuff that came out 40-odd 40, 40 years ago and that hardly anyone saw at the time. Whereas in Europe, it did like reasonably okay business, and that was more or less where the best reviews came from. Um, but yeah, that one was kind of sad to see because that is a really, uh, that is a really quite lovely movie. All this kind of talk about the you know box office numbers and everything, and and talking about um, films that kind of did well but not that well. What does the thing? What does what does the numbers for films like Suicide Squad and Batman vs Superman earlier in the year? say about what constitutes failure at the box office? Because, I mean, Batman vs Superman, if you kind of write down its box office figures, I mean, it probably got like, what, 800 million, 900 million maybe? Yeah, just under 900 million. I mean, that would, you know, people say, yeah, your film's going to make 900 million at the box office, but 
that now is kind of viewed as a failure. And um, Suicide Squad is, you know, it's going to be in the top. Might it's got a shot of being in the top ten most successful films of the year come the year end. I mean, we've still got another Disney film to come out, and we've got another Star Wars and a Harry Potter spin off. But it's kind of going to be viewed as a failure now. What have what has this summer done for kind of the perception of a film failing? I think it's reinforced the rule of thumb that has been around for a while, which is that a movie needs to earn. At around three times its budget in order to make a profit, and that is doubly true for blockbusters. Anything that costs $150, $200 million to make needs to earn like insane amounts of money. Uh, but also what matters is where it earns it, because obviously American studios make more money from the American box office because the uh, pipeline from theatre cashiers to uh, theatre registers to their own pockets is relatively straightforward. Whereas, you know, when you're talking about releasing a film in China because of various, uh, because you have to go through local distributors because of various laws about how much money can leave the country, they only get like 25% of whatever the gross is. So there's this, there's this theory that uh, if a film does well enough worldwide or in China that it doesn't matter how it does in the US. And I think this summer has kind of um, proven that to be, not entirely, not false, but certainly over exaggerated its importance. Because if you look at something like Warcraft, which earned, I think something like three hundred million dollars in in China, uh, which is a huge, crazy amount of money, but and people would say, oh, you know, maybe you'll get a sequel. That's probably still not enough because so little of that money will actually make its way back to Universal. Mm. Uh, and, and so, like when you look at something like. Finding Nemo, which cost about two hundred million. Finding Dory, sorry, which cost about two hundred million dollars to make, made nearly five hundred million in the US alone. So that one's going to be fine. Uh, and it, you know, even before you factor in what it earned globally, but then, like you say, something like uh, something like Batman versus Superman cost two hundred and fifty to three hundred million dollars to make, depending on who you believe. Uh, the studio officially said 250, but I think a lot of people say that it was probably a lot higher than that, and they're trying to uh, that tamp down how badly they needed it to be a hit. Uh, that one needed to earn probably about 900 million just to break even. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though with things like that and Civil War and Suicide Squad, there's more money to be made from like ancillary revenue from marketing, from uh, merchandise and stuff like that. It's still you know, movie studios make most of their money from movies. Like, that's where you want to make the money because it's the easiest way to justify greenlighting a sequel and keeping the same creative people involved. So it, I think this summer has emphasised something that's been true for a while, but that uh, it, it if you are spending a huge amount of money to make a film, then you need to you don't need to just do well. You need to make an ungodly amount of money to be a success. Mm. And is is that got something to do with perhaps budgets being much higher than they were? I mean, I mean, looking at some of the budgets of films that came out this summer, I mean, I'm kind of pretty surprised that something like Jason Bourne cost as much as it did. Mm -hmm. um, pretty surprised that Ghostbusters cost as much as it did. Um, I mean, without the with the absence of like a bona fide triple uh, A kind of movie star, you know, kind of a Tom Cruisey type person. That's kind of really, really kind of surprising how budgets seem to have skyrocketed, and for films that 
perhaps, you know, I mean, I'd be interested to know what the first born costs to make. You know, is it just maybe, I mean, for born in isolation, is that perhaps the money it took to get Matt Damon out of retirement, I guess? Yeah, I think that one, probably a large part of it was Matt trying to coax Matt Damon back and Paul Greengrass back after the Bourne legacy did pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't think Jason Bourne cost that much more than the Bourne legacy cost to make, because that one was also like a, a film that cost way too much for how much it ended up earning. But it is one of those cases where they tried to extend the franchise. It didn't work. So they tried to think of a way of correcting it because the Bourne franchise is, again, I think that's a universal one. It's one of their big, or at least it was 10 years ago, one of their biggest franchises. And so they wanted to try and find a way of doing it again. Mm. Uh, And unfortunately, that meant having to spend a huge amount of money for what ended up being not a great return. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. A costly, costly, well, kind of misfire, I guess. Um, but that's In terms it, of it? how much the Bourne identity cost, it cost £60 million, which was quite, I think that's a reasonable amount of money to spend on a film for the first time, and it ended up earning more than £200 million worldwide. That mm. was one. That's, that's the sort of thing where you could say, okay, it was kind of a push for it actually making a profit, but it, it, it did pretty okay with modest expectations, and then like supremacy and ultimatum were the ones that did like crazy huge business afterwards. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm very surprised at, at some of the numbers for for things. Um, the BFG kind of especially kind of. I know that people didn't go in to see it, but like looking at the the numbers, it actually looks like that film bombed. Mm. That tanked at like 160 odd million, given that it, it cost marginally less than that to make. Yeah, that that is very much like the the return on investment for movies is for blockbusters is relatively low this year. If you look at something like Star Trek Beyond, that cost a hundred and sixty five million or something. It ended up at currently it's sitting at little over two hundred million, which is pretty bad. I mean, it could still have territories that it's going to expand to. Could it earn more? But currently, it's only earned one point five times its budget. Wow. And that's that's pretty bad. And like when you look at the raw numbers, you think, oh, you know, two hundred million dollars—that's a lot of money. But again, when you're looking at budgets, when you're looking at what it costs to release a movie globally, uh, it's it's startling just how many of these blockbusters ended up uh, underperforming, not just domestically, which is something that's happening more and more, but globally as well. You know, when you think that five or six years ago, people, including myself, in an article I wrote for um, Hope Lies. Uh, they're talking about how the future of box office was overseas. It's like, no, that's not even the case anymore because overseas audiences aren't showing up in the numbers that you need for these films to be successes. Mm. I suppose the vacuum is now being filled by those kind of like mid, but what we used to call mid-budget films and or low-budget genre films. I mean, some of the numbers there are kind of eye-opening. Something like uh, Central Intelligence, the Kevin Hart, The Rock comedy, um, fifty million budget, two hundred and twelve million worldwide box office gross. Are we going to see more of those kind of films next year, or do you think that you know that, that Hollywood is going to kind of just keep going back to the well until they kind of uh, you know find water? I guess. Well, I I uh, crunched some numbers earlier today, and I decided that I was going to try and work out uh, in in the limited time I have. I think I did it in about half an hour, so I'm, I I may have missed some films, but I tried to work out what were the films that gave the highest return on investment this year? And mm-hmm. this was the top 10. 
Lights Out, which is a low-budget com- uh, horror that uh, cost $4.9 million to make, earned 27.7 times its budget globally. Wow. So that's pretty good. Purge election year cost ten million and uh, more than a hundred million, so it had like a ten point nine return. Secret Life of Pets, which only cost seventy five million, which is very very low for a animated movie these days, incredibly low, earned more than ten times its budget worldwide. Me Before You, which was that kind of treacly romance with Amelia Clark, earned ten times its budget worldwide because it only cost uh, twenty million dollars to make and it ended up earning more than two hundred million. Conjuring 2 earned eight times its budget. Bad Moms earned, as at, at the time of, uh, that we're recording, has earned seven times its budget uh, and, and is the biggest hit for STX, who are a kind of upstart news studio whose entire business model is built on making mid to low budget movies. That's been far and away their biggest success so far. Don't Breathe, which is a horror movie that is uh, currently sitting atop the charts in the US, earned six and a half times its budget. The Shallows, which is that Blake Lively Sharp movie, and 5.8 times. Sausage Party, which cost even less than Secret Lives of Pets. It cost 19 million, and you can really tell because that film does not look good um, animation-wise. Has earned five and a half times its budget. Angry Birds, uh, again, didn't cost a lot to make. Doesn't look good. Earned 4.8 times its budget. And, you know, the only, like, uh, other than Secret Life of Pets, the only kind of big bona fide blockbuster that's in that list uh, was at number 10, which was Finding Dory, which globally earned 4.7 times its budget. Uh, wow. So I think what you see from that list is that if you make a movie cheaply that's uh, either an original idea or at the very least is in a series that people trust, like, you know, you've got The Conjuring 2 in there and The Purge series, which is both of which are kind of established at this point. Uh, but if you have, like, original ideas that are low budget or relatively low budget when you're in the world of animation and that deliver on the premise and are you know like most of those films got really good reviews like uh well certainly when you compare to some of the movies they're up against uh people tend to show up and they tend to be a better investment than you know a new telling of ben-hur or tarzan Mm. yeah yeah which both you know the idea that we had two huge budgeted blockbusters uh reboots of tarzan and ben-hur and i probably don't know a single person who saw either um says quite a lot about this summer yeah i mean i i i can't imagine the meeting that led to someone saying that they should make a new version of ben-hur because like there have been a bunch of big budget swords and sandals movies in recent years and not a one of them has been a success (laughs) so i don't know why they would think that going after one that was based on like one of the most acclaimed uh, that that is like a remake of one of the most successful movies ever which was itself a remake of like previous usually successful movies and based on a book that was a big deal for about 20 years and not so much the last 80 mm-hmm. um, it just seems like such a wrong-headed choice on every and then to cast it with people like where the biggest name is what jack houston mm. which is you know he's a good actor not a draw it seems yeah. like a oh oh and morgan freeman i guess but like he didn't exactly make Transcendence an Avatar-style hit, did he? So it's uh, it certainly seems misbegotten on every conceivable level. Mm, I think maybe in the weeks after like Gladiator came out, that might have been a, like an mm. idea for executives to knock about. But yeah, that was like what sixteen years ago. So it may it may have been like an idea that has someone's had in their to do pile for sixteen years and only just got to. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. It definitely feels like something that should have happened by now. And like someone at the studio says, hey, did we make this? And they're like, no. Oh, might as well. Mm. Yeah, we've got, we've got the horses. Uh, so <laughs> let's do it. I want to talk about something else coming off the, of Suicide Squad. This has more to do with something you mentioned earlier about kind of reviews aggregators. And we talked earlier this year about the kind of controversy in inverted commas uh, around Ghostbusters, which essentially was just a bunch of man babies um, being upset that they'd remade their kind of favourite childhood film with ladies in it. Um, but what was interesting that happened with... Uh, Ghostbusters and also with Suicide Squad is that kind of organised groups took to the internet as they tend to do um, and try to kind of alter the perception of the film um, through kind of front-loading IMDb ratings and Rotten Tomato ratings and things like that which is kind of interesting because Rotten Tomatoes is something we've talked about a lot on this show if you've got half a brain, like you're going to figure out that a Rotten Tomatoes rating, uh, well, definitely a positive Rotten Tomatoes rating, um, doesn't actually mean that a film is really good. It means that, you know, a 90% fresh film just means that 90% of the critics who saw it and reviewed it and had their review uploaded onto Rotten Tomatoes did not hate the film, um, which is not the same thing as a film that is 90% good. Um, plus as well it kind of takes doesn't take into account you know we've seen a lot of films that are kind of good in bits and kind of deeply troublesome in others and you know you can't really reflect that in in a kind of numerical value it doesn't really work but weirdly this kind of creep has happened that you know I mean I've spoken to people who aren't perhaps uh, up on films and they kind of don't know what's out that year and you know they just go straight onto Rotten Tomatoes and say oh what's good or you know we've seen Rotten Tomatoes scores being added to movie posters and, and kind of DVD boxes which is kind of something I don't feel too good about. But this year with Suicide Squad and uh, Ghostbusters in particular, with the attempts to kind of fix those scores and kind of hobble those scores, I mean, we had a lot of people um, kind of downvoting it on IMDb, for example, um, and kind of it, it meant that there was a huge disconnect between uh, the IMDb rating and the Rotten Tomatoes rating and also vice versa for the, the Suicide Squad where people were giving it 10 out of 10 on IMDb without having actually seen the film. Do you think that those attempts, Ed, will kind of perhaps mean that studios aren't so quick to go to Rotten Tomatoes thing? Do you think that the people who perhaps trust Rotten Tomatoes a bit too much, they've now seen a, a big flaw in what is already a very flawed system? Uh, I think it, gradually people's trust in it may erode over time, but I think that it's so few people are aware of that sort of thing that I don't think it, it, it would take a very, very long time. I think a thing that's more likely to kind of make people change their mind and make them consider this stuff is all the increasing number of stories of like film critics receiving death threats for writing a bad review. Mm -hmm. um, for example, like around about the time that The Dark Knight Rises came out, you know, that's a film that uh, is enjoyable in a lot of places and uh, has a lot to recommend it, but it's also far and away the worst of that trilogy mm -hmm. by quite a pretty sizable margin it's a big dip in quality and it's it's kind of ridiculous and silly but you know some people wrote that and they got inundated with people you know attacking them particularly female critics this is something that is there's a there's a gendered aspect to it which really became apparent with ghostbusters but uh, uh, yeah once people online decide that they're going to be defensive of a certain movie or a certain filmmaker this is something you see a lot with 
Christopher Nolan fans, uh, you know, all of his films, when they come out, people get uh, attacked for saying that they're bad, trying to say that you're contrarian from people who want to say he's the next Kubrick or something. Uh, I think that that sort of stuff, if it became more well-known, and I think it is becoming more well-known because of the Ghostbusters thing, then that's more likely to kind of make people look at IMDb askance or look at Rotten Tomatoes with a more critical eye, which they should anyway, because like you say, a movie that has 90% on Rotten Tomatoes could mean either that 90% of critics saw it and gave it five stars or 90% of critics saw it and gave it three stars. <laughs> and there's, there is no differentiation between what that number means. Between, mm. It could mean pleasantly average or one of the best movies of the year and there's no way other than seeing it that you can really tell that. Mm. And I think that Suicide Squad reaffirms what we saw with Batman versus Superman. There is a, a real toxicity uh, in some of the debate around the quality of these films. And not even that, just just the kind of the, the boneheaded way of approaching it. Like you see on Twitter all the time, critics retweeting things that have been sent to them saying very, very kind of common one at the moment is you did not like this movie. Uh, talking about Batman, or, Batman vs Superman or Suicide Squad, you are clearly in the employ of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, this shows such a kind of gross misunderstanding of even like even some of the top critics. Like, I'm sure being a film critic isn't their full time job because there just really isn't any money in it. So if Marvel are dishing out cash for people to say that Suicide Squad is not much fun, um, I want to see some of that. Yeah, and also it's like they say, "Oh, you're you're clearly a Disney shill," and then you say. Well, they didn't give good reviews to like good reviews to Alice through the looking glass. Mm. They didn't try to prop up that piece of shit, (laughs) Um, you know. So why would it be that they're doing it for, you know, one one branch of the studio's movies or is the other? Is it because they're trying to like it's all part of an elaborate cover up, which I'm sure is what they would say, in which case it's like, why would Disney want to do this in order to ensure that a movie that cost them hundreds of million dollars to make would fail just to prop up their other ones it's like it's it's like ridiculous and gets you into kind of like 9-11 true for level disillusion uh, uh, derangement mm. in very short order yeah and i mean that has been uh kind of in a, in a summer that's been really shit for blockbusters we kind of really didn't need that feeling around films that mm-hmm. like you know when a film did do badly uh, you kind of want people to go, oh, okay, shit, that that wasn't very good. Like, let's try and figure this out. Not, you know, have to come out and, you know, see David Ayer, like, tweeting, oh, you know, we didn't make this film for critics. Uh, we made it for fans, which, you know, if that's true, then you clearly hate all your fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that really is not a very nice thing to do to people who are supposed to like you. Yeah, and also, it's so weird when watching going to the cinema to watch a movie suddenly becomes a radical political act Mm. like paying to watch ghostbusters in the cinema to watch a a remake of a 32 year old comedy Mm. starring popular actors suddenly becomes like an act of defiance it's like it shouldn't be that it should be i'm going to watch a movie because i like these people and i like their work and this Mm. seems like it could be fun or you know going to see suicide squad in order to you know determine just how kind of terrible and uh, a sign of the degeneration of civilization it is, which is certainly what it felt like when I went to watch it last week. Mm. Um, finally, on the subject of uh, Suicide Squad, how much of a problem have DC got? Uh, the Nolan Batmans aside, 
it really doesn't look great for them, does it? No, I mean, we talked a little about this last week, but I think that there is definitely a sense that they are rapidly running out of um, second chances mm-hmm. because like Man of Steel came out and it did okay, but not a lot of people liked it. I think it was very, I think it got uh, like a decent tomato score, but again, it was one of those, it was a film that got a lot of three-star reviews, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that it is a half-star movie. It is a very <laughs> bad movie. Um, but it was, you know, that came out and then be well, you know, they're going to add Batman for the next one. So maybe that one will be good. And Batman versus Superman came out and that was really, you know, not very much of an improvement. Uh, it was at least interesting in how bad it was. Uh, and then everyone was like, oh, no, like Suicide Squad's coming out. That's going to be like irreverent. That's going to be one that's a really different. So I think we can give that one. And that one was like even worse. So it is very much a situation where you look at all of these films that are coming out and you think how many time, how many more chances do they get, you know? If Wonder Woman's bad, people, you know, are people going to give that one a chance because it's a character they liked from Batman versus Superman, even though Gal Gadot didn't really do a huge amount of stuff. Um, you know, it's it, and if that's bad, you know, who's going to have any confidence that Justice League will be any good, considering it's from the same people who have made three films that people have hated so far? You know, there's not a huge amount of uh, room for error they have left, uh, and it's not like. It's not like the Marvel Cinematic Universe where Iron Man came out, it was really well received and it did well. Incredible Hulk came out and people were like, oh, that wasn't great and it didn't do very well, but they still had the, the goodwill of the previous film to kind of go off of. There isn't a film that you could point to from this current iteration of the DC Universe where you can say, oh, you know, like not every film they're going to do is going to be good, but they have this film to kind of you can go off and say, oh, you know, they, they can do good work. We've we've seen no proof so far that they can do good work. Mm. It's weird. Wonder Woman is a weird kind of, kind of weirdly positioned film in that a lot of the kind of sexist man babies who need DC to be in any way kind of like redeemed are relying on a female-led uh, superhero film to come out and do that because, you know, you know Justice League... I, I, you know, Zack Snyder can't handle two superheroes, so like eight superheroes in one thing, you know, it's going to be a bit of a short order. Uh, well, kind of, it's going to be a bridge too far for the guy. Yeah, and that, and that is the one, even though, like, I'm contradicting myself here, but like, that is the one that I am pulling for to actually do well, just because, like you say, it is female led and it's directed by, uh, is it Patty Jenkins? Yeah, Patty Jenkins, who's like a, a really interesting filmmaker who did like Monster and stuff like that. Uh, and an episode of Arrested Development, weirdly enough, um, like she's a she's a, a filmmaker. I want to be able to do more work, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, the situation now is that if you want someone to do work, that means at some point they may end up having to direct the superhero movie. Um, yeah, and you would hope that she's like good enough and that she can really wrangle something good out of this particular like out of Zack Snyder the the template that Zack Snyder has given her. Um, which and if she can do that, then you know maybe the Flash movie will be good. Maybe the Aquaman movie will be good. Not not got great hopes for that one, but <laughs> you know of there's there's reasons to think that these iterations of the characters could be good or could be interesting. Um, but but it all seems to be falling apart pretty rapidly at this point. Mm. I've got my fingers crossed for a Captain Boomerang spinoff uh, <laughs> written, written by Nick Cave and directed by John Hillcoat. Um, That'd be great. Yeah, that would be pretty... Well, uh, who are we kidding? That'd be fucking awful. Um, <laughs> so uh, you've had a week to calm down, Ed. Uh, still feel the same way about Suicide Squad? 
Um, well, I did think about the line, that's a killer app, um, a few days ago, which is the line that Harley Quinn says when they kill Slipknot, the man who can climb anything, mm-hmm. by pressing a button that blows his head up. And I just, the, the two hours later, I was covered in blood. So I don't know what happened in that period of time, but I think it's safe to say that uh, it still left me pretty angry in terms of every all, all the choices that that film makes. Yeah, yeah. I think you're even being you're being uh, too kind to call them choices. Uh, just kind of just a seemingly <laughs> random series of like light lights and kind of like images that they think makes sense. Um, I don't think in any way was the choice of anyone with uh, with kind of like a modicum of, of sanity, really. You think they treated the script like a choose-your-own-adventure book? Mm, yeah, but if you like... if you put it through a shredder and then tried to put it back together <laughs> with bits of a different book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, that is exactly how it feels. Anyway, let's stop talking about this goddamn film. That's uh, like two hours of our lives um, that we're not going to get back that we watched it for and now that we've talked about it for, but, you know... It makes us feel a little bit better. Um, what have we got to recommend this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend a movie that came out, uh, I believe it came out during the summer or maybe just towards the end of the spring. It's a movie that I was very much looking forward to and which definitely delivered. It's the new film from Jeremy Solnier, who directed the movies Murder Party and Blue Ruin, which was my favourite movie from last year. It's called Green Room and it stars Anton Yelchin, Imogen Poots, Alia Shawkat and Patrick Stewart as a quietly menacing neo-Nazi. Mm. Uh, finally, a role that suits his head. Mm-hmm. And he is... Uh, it's a movie about a punk band who are uh, kind of stranded in the middle of nowhere because they've run out of money and the, a gig that they had been hoping would be high-paying has been cancelled. So someone says to them, you know, if you go and play this neo-Nazi club, you know, you'll get paid for it and you'll be able to... Uh, kind of struggle your way back to Portland where they're all from and they agree to it and then when they get to the club and they perform they go into the green room and they stumble across the aftermath of a murder and then suddenly it becomes all about them trying to figure out how to escape from this place without being murdered and the owners of the club uh, including uh, Patrick Stewart and Macon Blair who was the lead in Blue Ruin is a, is a really fabulous uh, young actor uh trying to figure out a way of killing them in such a way that they won't get blamed for it. You know, trying to find out a way of making their deaths seem like something that they can cover up. And it's a really tense, well-constructed movie. Uh, The cast are all really great. It's got... It does something that I love to see, which is it's a movie with a very limited location, a very small number of actors, all doing really great work. And uh, Jeremy Solnier continues to demonstrate why he's one of the most kind of interesting and exciting directors working in kind of the micro-budget realm today. Uh, and it's it's fantastic. It's really, really good. Mm, yes, very much looking forward to that one. Um, yeah, we loved Blue Ruin on the show. And, uh, yeah, Green Room is kind of next in line from from uh, Jeremy Saulnier, who uh, I think he really hope he kind of avoids that trap of directing kind of big-budget films and that he can just kind of keep ploughing his own furrow because I think that's where he's going to do the most interesting work. Fair um, warning, though, to anyone who checks out, it is super violent and gory in a way that I wasn't expecting and that made me feel a little sick in places. Wow. Um, so if you are prepared for that, then it's really, really good. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, something to prepare for. Right, OK, noted. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book this week, and uh, you're going to hear the 
the the name Patrick Ness quite a lot over the next couple of years. Uh, he's a mostly a young adult author, um, and kind of I'm a big fan of his work. He wrote a, a trilogy called Chaos Walking, um, which is you know fascinating young adult series, and uh, that's going to be made into a film in the next few years with uh, Daisy Ridley. Um, there is a the new Doctor Who spin-off uh, called Class. Is uh, He's written that kind of originally. He's also got a film coming out this year, one of his best books, a book called Monster Calls, which is being directed by um, uh, J.A. Bayona, I think his name is, who did The Orphanage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be one of the films I'm looking forward to most this year. But I've just finished a book of his that I got last year but never got around to reading. Um, which would make a great film if a very unusual film, uh, a film called More Than This, a, a film in which a, a young uh, kind of gay British-American teen commits suicide after he finds out um, that kind of uh, pictures of him have been shared around school, uh, which kind of outs him. And he kills himself, but he he wakes up in what is kind of hell, I guess, but it's actually real life, um, the life he left behind, and he can't figure out what it is that's uh, happening to him and the course of the book kind of slowly uh, moves around this weird kind of um, uh, what's that I am legend kind of uh, territory then it moves into kind of the matrix I guess and then the terminator and it's uh, got a lot of sophisticated ideas about uh, depression and bullying and kind of suicidal tendencies and and you know the idea of there being hope for young people. Um, but at the same time, it happens to also be an amazing kind of sci-fi book. Um, I really didn't know what was going on until like most of, like most of the book had gone by and kind of the crazy theories that I'd come up with on the way, uh, all proved to be kind of like wildly wrong, but like, you know, it just kept you guessing every, it was a real page turner, which is the least you can say for a book, which, you know, of which you're <laughs> supposed to turn the pages. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing read. And uh, I'm recommending it to everyone. And yeah, like I say, Patrick Ness is going to be a name you're going to be hearing a lot of because uh, his stuff is very filmable, uh, very cinematic, and um, but also really odd. And it doesn't kind of fall into that usual kind of chosen one type uh, kind of hero on a on a quest uh, uh, kind of adventure. Uh, they're all very kind of different and, and unusual, and and uh, kind of deal with kind of fringes, fringe groups and things. It, it, it's fascinating. Um, so read it and yeah, keep an eye out for Monster Calls, which is, uh, I think it's going to be a, a pretty good film this year. But yeah, that's it. Uh, that's your lot on the subject of how shit Suicide Squad is again. Um, <laughs> thanks as always for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, leave us a little review. You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook as well. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. Uh, But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.